Welcome to another episode of Being Human. I'm here with Malcolm Parlett. He's a Gestalt practitioner, uh, uh, an, acad- he's an academic, he's a con- been a consultant, a therapist, uh, the author of this fabulous book. Um, I'm not sure how easily it's going to be to uh, see this on screen here, but uh, I'm using my iPad. Future Sense, um, five explorations of whole intelligence for a world that's waking up. He comes highly recommended um, from a, a friend of mine who's also a, a consultant. Uh, Malcolm, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. I'm delighted, excited, in fact. Yes. Um, yeah, wonderful, wonderful to have you here. And I've just, I've just finished the book. Uh, yeah, and it's sort of alive with stories of your, your experiences across the, the breadth of your career. And you've um, you know, sort of wonderfully brought all these threads together into this, this framework um, of, of whole intelligence and these five explorations, uh, which I, I really enjoyed. Um, maybe we, for our listeners, we should give you a little or give them a little bit of the backstory to, to Malcolm. Um, I mean, all the way back, I suppose, I mean, to your birth, which is interesting and plays a role in the, in the book. <laughs> Does it? Yeah, I, mean, I can't remember. What, in like, terms of being a war baby, right? Oh, a war baby. Absolutely. Yes. With a lifelong commitment to peace, actually, to, to taking peace seriously. And um, as something that we should put as much effort into as we put into preparation for war. It's just right. that would be an example of whole intelligence par excellence, that if we actually really believed that we needed a peaceful world, which we definitely do, given the climate crisis and so on, global cooperation, we need to set about it in a very, very dedicated fashion and shift the vast effort and resources that goes into producing armaments to getting rid of them. Ah, okay, yeah. So, um, yes, I'm a bit of a peace activist on the quiet, but I don't, <laughs> I don't chain myself to railings, I'm afraid. I don't have the courage <laughs> or the endurance or the bladder capacity to do that. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's true, isn't it? You can, you... <laughs> got to be able to hold it <laughs> you're gonna glue yourself to uh to yeah to a fence somewhere anyway so yes that's the beginning but i mean my um i i went to university and studied psychology and did a and went all the way to getting a phd and then i got this fantastic break to go to america and to work at mit which i did and uh, in that time, developed a whole series of approaches to studying students, students' learning. And I was working with two psychiatrists who ran the the student health service there. And um, I started really observing and being a, a, a sleuth, uh, an anthropologist, uh, and a kind of natural history observer, which psychologists, I'd been trained as an experimentalist, but I became much more of a all-round observer type. And from that has grown really the work I've done uh, with a very big extra influence when I studied Gestalt approaches. And um, so that added a whole 
extra huge series of new dimensions to my work. Oh, that's interesting. So maybe give us the before and after, Malcolm, you know, pre, pre-Gestalt and afterwards and, and how that changed you. Oh, gosh. Well, before, I was already holistic in mindset. I wanted to study complicated things in their entirety rather than trying to categorize and um, objectify, measure, define all of that scientific method, which, which has its place. But I wanted to do something else. I wanted to keep close to the complex complexities and the the way that everything relates together and things impact one another and so on. So what I was doing at MIT and I carried on at the University of Edinburgh and later at the Open University, I was uh, interested in not just students' intellectual achievements, important as those are in a, obviously in a university context, but also in how those um, qualities of thinking clearly, analyzing, having judgments and so on, were ground in their who they were, their personalities, their enthusiasm, and how that interacted with the, with the way in which they were being taught, turned on, mm-hmm. excited, stimulated, whatever. So you've got to look at everything in the round. And that, I think, is a lot of our reductive scientific approaches, which are, are fine for certain things, but they're in the social sciences, I think they've been really rather uh, inappropriate. We really needed a different form of rigor, the kind of rigor that, you know, very good historians bring to their work when they check things and they look for evidence and so on, but they're not grilled into a kind of control group, experimental group, measuring changes which I called at the beginning, this was pre-Gestalt, I was already calling this the agricultural botany paradigm because it was like, you know, you grow, grow things and you put fertilizer on this lot but not on that lot and then you see how their growth is different. I mean, it's just ludicrously oversimple for dealing with the real world. Right. So I was in on all of that and, and teaching um, uh, people my methods of uh, combining data from all sorts of sources. Um, and that grew into uh, organizational consulting, particularly for educational institutions and, and um, philanthropic, philanthropic uh, organizations and so on. So, and then I encountered Gestalt. And what Gestalt did was so we come to the after now, was to shock me out of my roots, really, uh, to come into the present. Right. To, <clears throat> and to tell a higher grade of truth. It's like I had been brought up in a sort of middle-class academic, uh, uh, had an academic background and so on, and I had a front and I had I tried to defend against, you know, assaults of criticism or whatever. Um, but it was about it. When I got into Gestalt, I realized you couldn't get away with all of that. Because actually, if you're fully aware in the present, then 
uh, you get you notice when you're putting on an act or you're mm. not really saying what you really think or you're not in touch with the fact that deep down you may be harboring huge resentment or grief or the, you know the after effects of long-term after effects of, of psychological injuries or traumas, whatever. So that, and then in the, in the work of the Gestalt work I did, I was very privileged and had a lovely, fantastic group of uh, trainers at the Gestalt Institute of Cleveland. I learned to stay with, to stay with what's happening in the moment, to... Uh, notice what's going on for me and to notice what's going on for whoever else I'm with at that time. It might be a group, might be a family, might be an individual. And to notice my breath, my breath, my voice, how grounded I am, am I settled into my chair. So, of course, I'm now doing all of this, just talking yeah, about it. Yeah, you, you, in fact, it's <laughs> having an effect on me. I'm, like, I'm checking myself as, yeah, as you're exactly. saying to those. Exactly. And that's, that is absolutely what I loved about Gestalt, was direct, and you could make an immediate change, immediate differences. And one of the things that I remember learning, it was a sim- so simple and yet so important, really, that the only way you can make a change is in the present. Because right. what's gone is gone. You can't change the past. You can change your, how you view the past and deal with the present consequences of whatever happened back then. But you can't actually go back. Equally, you can't go into the future. You don't know what's going to happen. I mean, we, we can see this so vividly now with the pandemic. Like people are jumping up and down saying, oh, I can go on holiday and I'll be able to do this. And when the things are lifted, then I'll be able to do this. And they don't know because they don't know about the new variants coming on that might come in. We've had so many surprises along the way and we could have more. We don't know. So you can't fix the future. You can have an intention. You can make a plan, but it's provisional. It's tentative. It's, it's, uh, so that whole concentration on the present was another vital learning for me. And uh, I, as somebody who was terribly heady, I mean, I'd been, you know, intellectually trained, uh, I had to also learn about the, the full dimensions of my, of my experience, which were vastly more than what I was thinking about or talking about right so then that got me into being embodied and that was a long journey uh, a long journey to to come out of my head and into my heart into my guts and we now know of course much more about our our, about human consciousness and actually the there's a huge um, neural net network throughout the body, but particularly around the heart and around the gut, as well as after the brain, those are the two big centers. And all of them offer us information. This feeds into whole intelligence because one of the explorations of whole intelligence is into embodying. So it's... 
And, and, and you, yeah, as you say, you first got turned on to that uh, through the Gestalt work. And so how did that, how did that impact you as an experimenter? As a, you know, how did you then take that into, into your, your work at that time? Mm, yeah, well, for a, quite a while, I, I had a sort of dual career. Right. Um, so I carried on earning my money because I had a, a, a you know, clientele and reputation and blah, blah, blah about w- looking at educational systems. So I carried on doing that. Um, but in the meantime, I began to do little gestalt type things. And then the gestalt type things slowly grew. And so that actually, when I finally gave up the last real money I was earning as an educating type was uh, as an education type um, was I was a visiting professor at the Open University and I was on quite a big contract there. So, and when I gave that up, I thought, oh, I'm going to have a big dip in my income now. But I didn't, because meanwhile, the gestalt work had risen. (laughs) And so I didn't have any loss of income, which was fantastic. Right. You're touching on potentially another exploration. So it sounds like you're experimenting with gestalt on the side. Uh, A bit like your uh, peace activism. You were. uh... (laughs) Yes. Yes, absolutely. I I was. And, and, um, and it was a very fertile time in Gestalt in Britain. I mean, it was just beginning, really. There, was, there had been some before uh, my time, but I came and there was lots of opportunity and I got very involved in building a whole lot of Gestalt institutions and uh, was the first editor of the British Gestalt Journal and so on. So I was deeply involved. So I'm... I'm I'm a bit of a um, relic from the past <laughs> for some of the young young people these days. <laughs> right, a kind right. of respected relic, but a relic nevertheless. <laughs> right. So you're a you're a, a big cheese in the in the Gestalt firmament. Yeah, yeah, and I and I'm what I'm very keen on, and being in in the Gestalt tradition is that one of the founders, who was a man called Paul Goodman, who was a tremendous social activist and brilliant man, and he was constantly wanting to take Gestalt into being more of a, well, he, at one point he even called it sociotherapy, I mean, into saying that instead of locating people's problems all internally, we should be constantly looking at them in context. And that if people are very, very disturbed, uh, upset, endangered, feeling uh, scared, whatever, this is as much to do with the context in which they're in, the environment that they're in. Right. And we have to look at the two together. You can't just, yeah. look, at, can't just look at psychology on its own. All psychology ought to be social psychology. It was that right. kind of thing. And, and, and because of that emphasis... I have been very interested in trying to find language to talk about Gestalt and to demonstrate it and use it uh, in a way that's much more user-friendly than the, than the Gestalt as it's normally taught, which is rather complex. I mean, it's wonderful. Gestalt ideas and theories, but 
books and books have been written about it these days, or, although it started as very anti-academic in a way. It, it is deeply philosophically and psychologically interesting material. But I wanted something which was a bit more rough and ready and able to go out and talk to managers and leaders and army officers or, or whatever. And so this is what partly been the fuel for my writing um, about the five explorations, which are all central to the Gestalt tradition, but it's a different map in a way. It's a different framework. Yeah, and I must say the book is, is, is really accessible. Yeah, yeah, you're not using philosophical jargon or, or scientific no. jargon. It's a, lot, no. you know, it's, it's a lot of it's grounded in stories. It's, yes, yeah. just underneath the surface it, <laughs> of that simplicity, there's <laughs> enormously complex ideas which are also interesting, but they're, but they're not, they aren't necessarily useful enough ideas. They're fascinating and interesting and so on, but there needs to be something which is more readily available. So that's right. what, what the book was about. Yeah. And so what were some of the ways in which you brought this, I suppose, this, uh, the, these insights and this awakening in yourself to, to others when you started to, to take it into the world? Um, well, it became, uh, it became a, a map which at first I was applying very kind of self-consciously in a way and, and sort of, and then what I realised was that everything fitted into it. Uh, everything could, this could fit, so all sorts of things. So I think of uh, groups I worked with, I worked with um, communities, um, as well as individuals uh, as a coach, working with um, ev everybody from senior executives to people just um, wanting supervision of their management work or their work as a supervisor and so on. So it's, um, it just, it became a sort of easily applicable, useful map, and that, which mm. I used as a kind of checklist so that, uh, which might be, I could just explain that. Yeah, bit, cool. that at a, at a, after, a, say, a meeting, a committee meeting or something, I use, use it as a kind of checklist. I say, here are the five explorations. These, these areas of, of human competence, kind of capabilities, and how much were we demonstrating them and using them in this meeting? Mm. So I look back and sort of check and might say, well, one of them is, um, did we respond to the situation? We had this problem to talk about, this, whether we were going to open this new activity, open, we were going to put effort into it or something. Did we deal with it? Yeah, yeah, basically we did. Okay, so tick it. Uh, interrelating. Were we actually engaging with each other in a reasonable way, in a respectful way, in a way which brought out everybody's individual 
voices and contributions. Yes, we did, especially when we invited, I don't know, Sue to <laughs> say more about her idea or something. And everyone went, oh, yeah. So, yes, yeah, we did interrelating. Uh, were we embodied? Oh, that's interesting. It's not a question that often people don't ask. Were we embodied? <laughs> Almost never, I'd say, Malcolm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, were we embodied? Were we actually in touch with our feelings? Were we comfortable? Uh, yeah, actually, most of the time we were. Yeah, somebody pointed out that it, we'd all wake up more if we stood up and stretched and opened the window and had a good gulp of fresh air um, and sh- loosened our shoulders and and just generally stretch and just take a few moments out and we did that in the meeting so yeah we were embodied in that way and then were we um experimenting this is another of the explorations were we experimenting were we pushing the boundaries of the familiar were we actually dealing with things that were fresh new vital exciting novel uh, or were we as it were just bumbling along on the same old tracks using the same old words looking at the same old issues in the same old boring way and um well you know we could have done a bit more of that so there we did a bit of experimenting but we could have done a lot more so that's yeah. a sort of so then there's a question mark against that exploration, if you like. And then, and then finally, were we self-recognizing? Uh, in other words, were we actually reflecting on how we were doing, checking in with each other, making sure that everybody was on, on it, uh, dealing with the issues? Um, were we working together well as a team and so on? And yes, in some ways we were, in some ways we weren't. But, but the, the key thing is, here's these five things. They all carry a punch. Yeah. They're relevant. They're real. And, they, and people understand them. Don't need to go on a lengthy gestalt course to learn about those things. Except maybe embodying that is the, that's the key, the key one which in our culture is so devalued. Exactly. It's almost taken, it's almost viewed as somehow mystical or woo-woo. Yeah, it's, yeah. It, 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 there's such a taboo against it, isn't there? It's my experience yeah. in sort of the modern context. Yes. This is kind of split between, um, if you like, the intellect, argument, discussion, words, symbols, data, da-da-da-da, and the actuality of who we are. And we are... Yeah. Absolutely embodied. We are. We are body. We are body. We're so, and and actually, we live in a culture which is completely skewed to being um, dealing with bodily things, but in a crazy way. So, I mean, think about the amount of money and attention that goes into the cosmetics industry. Yeah. Think about all the obsession about, well, at the moment, about COVID and so on. 
but also about health, vitamins, diets, weight, or like an obsessional attitude to, to our physical bodies. And then there's all the people rushing off to gyms and, and um, running and looking at their, how many paces that they've run <laughs> and all of this. It's like an, a kind of obsession, but not the most simple and elemental part of, of being a body, which is to notice what you're sensing, what you're feeling, what's the truth that you, of the world and of yourself that you can pick up by just attending to, ah, yes, what's going on here? Um, I'm feeling excited or I'm feeling scared or I'm feeling not very interested in, in such and such. And yet I'm supposed to be talking about it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that's my personal hypothesis is the other thing that I know. So I think you're right about embodied. And I think second on the list in terms of least likely to be engaged in is actually the self-recognizing. Yeah. Right. And I think those are linked because often when we engage in self-recognizing, it brings up feelings in the exactly. body, some of which we exactly. might not like. And yeah. so if we're not comfortable in our skin, in our bodies, then we're less likely to want to engage in exactly. self-recognizing. And often when I work with leaders and, and managers, their hesitancy is something like, oh, I don't want to set off the hairs running. Or I don't want to get into a load of, mm. you know, emotionality. You know, I prefer not to have those types of reflective sessions because I don't particularly yeah. want to deal with what, what might come up. And I, I think that's linked with a, a, a reticence to be in the body. Well, yes, indeed. I mean, the, and also, the, you're totally right about the self-recognizing and embodying going together. They all actually go together. Of course, yes. And, and, and one of the things on training coaches and so on is to, is to give them the experience of, say, in a pair, talking about their, how they're connecting, so they're in touch with their interrelating. And then the next five minutes, they can switch from being not only in touch with how they're relating, but also how embodied are they at the same time? So they have sort of two things and they begin to juggle them and eventually you build up to three and then eventually to five because they all are relevant all the time in something like coaching. Exactly. And, and, and interrelating people generally quite comfortable with, but often at a verbal or a conceptual level, but inter interrelating at a heart level, emotional level. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, even at a physical level, right, you know. Yes, <laughs> um, I mean, part of it, uh, you, uh, you hinted at this, and they're absolutely right, it's a, is that people do not, uh, so m most people probably, unless they've done some real work on themselves therapeutically or in coaching or in some other self-exploring mode, uh, are carrying unbelievable amounts of un, what we call unfinished business or mm. feelings from their childhood, which they've never really expressed or traumatic residues. And everybody, I mean, the trauma is simply an extreme injury, but psychological injuries occur throughout for everybody. And, and people adjust to them. We, in Gestalt, we talk about creative adjustments so that, if you are going to get punished or have your phone taken away or whatever, uh, if you do X, then you learn to either avoid doing X 
or doing it secretly. So you begin to adjust to the management of X. But that then becomes your, your way of being in the world, yeah. part of your repertoire. And a lot of our personal repertoires are out of date. Yeah. Belong to earlier eras. And yet we're stuck with them. They're, they're habitual tendencies. And um, the self recognizing, you begin to capture that, say, oh, God, yes, right. That has to do with, oh, yes, of course, I've always had that thread of insecurity or blaming other people or lousing up in a particular kind of critical situation. And I have to learn to do something different. I have to experiment with something new. So you're into experimenting and responding to the actual situation that you're in rather than to the, actually, the situation that would existed 30 years ago. Exactly. <clears throat> but you can't get into that experimentation unless you've caught yourself, unless you've done the, this is exactly right, you know, they're all linked, right? Unless yeah, we're in our absolutely, bodies, absolutely. unless we're self-recognizing, unless we're yeah, doing that reflecting. Exactly. You cannot you catch can that insight, which is, oh God, this may have started when I was seven with <laughs> Uncle Billy. And... And then, of course, we're not, yeah. we, we don't, the, 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 even the thought to experiment with a new behavior yeah. um, doesn't even occur, right? Well, partly because it, it, it brings, as you said earlier, it brings up the possibility that you might experience the feelings of a seven-year-old. Yeah. And, and, if and if you were traumatized at that time and you were traumatized at seven, you, you don't want to go back because ev everything around that era has got squashed a bit yeah. or forgotten or buried. And pulling it up to the surface and re-experiencing, if only for a few minutes, of, of real pain, um, nevertheless, it's, it's avoided. So all the defenses at the time that you had, like you crutch, if you're, if you're a boy, you almost absolutely had to learn to control your tears. So, you know, you, you couldn't cry. So that, that, that would bring down unbelievable shame from your peers and so on. So, so a lot of men have got fantastic um, tension around their eyes and and they restrict their breath, and they do all sorts of things to avoid crying. Thank God it's changing. Yes, it is. It, 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 it is changing. changing. Slightly, but I, and I'm just, when I first hit, because I got, first got into therapy, I, uh, yeah, I, I remember reflecting to my therapist, I hadn't, I hadn't cried for a decade. Yeah. And in fact, I was working with somebody recently coaching, and, and he admitted to me he hadn't cried for a decade. So, yeah. 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 And, and now, if I'm feeling low, I sometimes put on music that I know will make me feel, make me cry. There's <laughs> yeah. certain pieces of music I just are associated with the loss of my lover or whatever, you know, the death of a friend or something. And I know I, as soon as I get into the music, I start to cry and I feel better. I feel yeah. better for it. <laughs> oh, well, this is great. Life's so great. Yes, that's right. Yeah, that's right. And, and in fact, my therapist at the time that he didn't—he he, he uh, suggested movies, 
and that was what broke me open. Uh, I went to see um, the Notebook, you know, a romance, a romance movie, but there's some sad elements. So. Yeah. Mm. Uh, so yeah, so um, it's been a journey. I, I, uh, I'm still learning, of course, as we do. I derive some some um, because I'm now at a stage in my life where I'm thinking about the end. Yes. So I'm coming up for my 80th birthday. I am in the actuarial statistics and things kick in. A lot of my friends have already died. Um, so, um, and I, I'm hoping I've got another 10, 15, could be as many as 20 years, but I, mm-hmm. I'm not anticipating that. I'm not necessarily set on that if it comes earlier i don't want to be a vegetable so um i want to i i I always am always excited by the memory of somebody who told me about his father who lived outside the village and cycled in every day lived on his own he was a widower he cycled in every day went to the pub read a paper, got got a paper, read it, had his lunch, cycled back. And he did this day in, day out for years. And then one day, I don't know, he had an accident or he fell off his bike or something, broke a leg, he couldn't cycle anymore. And at that point he said, I don't want to live anymore. And he didn't do anything violent to himself. He just stopped eating. That's interesting. My granddad did exactly the same thing. Really? Yeah. And stop eating, and, and I, I, I would like to do that. And this guy brought all his family round and said goodbye to them all, and made sure his will was in order and everything was hunky dory, and then just slowly faded away. Mm. And that, to me, would be the best death. So, uh, so what will be? <laughs> what's your equivalent of not being able to go to the pub, Mike? <laughs> Malcolm, you know what your know marker yet. is. You don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Not being able to do podcasts anymore. <laughs> yeah, something like that. <laughs> it's, um, but but I had this. I, I had one of my friends from MIT days was an, a wonderful experimental physicist, and. Um, he lived well into his, he must have been nearly 90 or maybe over 90. And um, his wife, his widow, when he finally died, told me that his last words that he uttered were, as he was approaching death, he said, oh, this is interesting. (laughs) Well, maybe he had a vision of what's beyond, Malcolm. (laughs) I know. Well, we do know from near-death experiences and so on that people do. Yeah. So it's like there is a welcome of some kind or the experience of that, whatever it means. Well, well, that's interesting. And that was something I was was sort of what intrigued me about the book is almost what was missing, at least in my mind, was um, a kind of a connection to... I don't know a metaphysical realm or or, or mm. any kind of higher plane. Mm. Is that yeah. something you dismiss as superstition? Superstition no. is that something that that you believe in but didn't want to include? Like why why is that yeah. not there? 
I think that's a really good point, and I I I think it's um, I think that my position has been that in the Gestalt world, it's a very divisive issue. There are some people who are absolutely on a spiritual path and see everything they do as as uh, evidence of it, really, of practicing their their spiritual sense and the and a sense of the divine but there's also another whole tradition that gestalt doesn't want to go down that route and that gestalt in itself is a good discipline to live by and you don't need higher powers or the divinity or whatever and to some extent our founders weren't weren't very um didn't forge a, a spiritual path and i have a, a an interesting and quirky historical um point about this which is that, that the, there was a founding group in the very early 1950s or late 40s who were meeting in new york and who were the foundational group who really charted gestalt therapy built on gestalt psychology but on psychoanalysis and Lewinian field theory and so on. But they were bringing together, synthesizing this whole approach. And one of them was a man called Paul Weiss. And he was uh, a Taoist and uh, um, very interested also in Buddhism and, and absolutely saw this emerging discipline, or wasn't really as strong as that, but these emerging ideas, he brought always that element in. And he died. He had a heart failure uh, while the process was going on of forming this thing. And my theory is that none of the others picked it up. He was carrying that banner right. in, into the mix, and he was gone. Right. And the others tended to be more secular and political. So that, that, particularly with Paul Goodman, that became more the line that we've gone on. And I think it's, it is a shame, because actually I do think that Gestalt's deeply gone into inevitably raises questions about what is inexplicable, what is greater than the, the widest possible context for existence. Yeah. Yeah. And that's certainly been my experiences. It's almost like as I do more of my trauma release work, it's like lifting a load and I get lighter and lighter as a being. And then I yes. somehow become more open to sort of wonderment and, yes, and asking exactly. these bigger questions and, and sort of sitting in the uncertainty of what could be beyond. And I, yes. I sort of wax and wane with my sort of spiritual enthusiasm, one might say, but it, mm. it's certainly become a, a presence in my life, which, which, which wasn't really there before. No, absolutely. So I think that I, I'm not sure whether I funked out or whatever. I'm not sure why there is more of it in the book. I mean, part of it was, was a, a big job to contain it because it could have been much longer. Right. I had, had a lot more to say, and um, uh, and I found it terribly difficult to write, and that relates to my my uh, my problems, my my 
my own personal struggles because I had a, the, one of my creative adjustments when I was very small was to keep quiet and to hide rather. And so the, the whole later part of my life where I've been um, wanting to come out and to speak and be more bold and bolder in my statements and in my having more courage to speak out and so on. All of that's been learned behavior. It was not what I started with at all. Right. I was on, I was Mr. Invisible and um, learnt to live in the shadows, really. That's fascinating because the book's so vivid. I know. <laughs> and bold, right. Yes. It, 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 well, by the time I wrote it, but I mean, it was absolutely incredibly, uh, incredible struggle. And the only reason that I wrote it was that I promised my lover at the time who died that I would finish it and then publish it and dedicate it to her. I would okay. never, never have finished it otherwise. Wow. And wow. It, was a, it was a sacred promise. Yeah. I had to do it. And even then, I had points where I wanted to give up. And I yeah. was sort of saying, well, she'd understand. And, you know, and I hope, no, you've got to do it. You've just got to do it. Right. <laughs> yeah, wow. it, is, it is a paradox. And I do write. I always have written a lot. Um, papers, chapters, small things. But to write a book that was as it were, so much more revealing of my totality, my total being. Uh, that, was, that was the struggle. I had to show myself. Yeah. Yeah, um, and it's, um, I mean, there's nothing more bold about postulating the nature of human intelligence. I mean, it's... <laughs> <laughs> well, I know. It's a well, grand I... task. <laughs> Yeah, and, and what I'm trying to write now, I'm going through a sort of not quite the same level of intense resistance, but I'm having to still overcome. I'm writing a, a whole intelligence manifesto. Oh, wow. Okay. I've got something come up here that saying my default speakers come in or something. Don't know what that's about. I had a notice on my screen. Mm -hmm. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm trying to encapsulate what I'm, what's in the book, but in the much smaller, more condensed form to appeal to, uh, um, well, the Davos constituency in part. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so this is a challenge. Right. Um, to get, to get our elites out of their heads. Yeah. I mean, I, I do feel passionately about the fact that whole intelligence is something that has, uh, we, I mean, the first thing that we need to do to change the world is to realize that actually it all depends on human beings. I mean, we can have in COP26 coming up. I mean, they can come up with anything they like, but actually to make it all happen, we've got to deal with people people's resistance, people's fears, uh, capitalizing on their enthusiasm, bringing consciousness up 
Otherwise, it's not going to work. None of it's going to work. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this idea of embodiment being in the body, but also in the environment and connecting to the environment. I mean, that's for me where the environmental movement, you know, needs to start. Yes. It's, it's not yes. targets and emissions and all this sort of yeah. models and all of that. Forget all of that. It's who are you and what's your relationship to the natural world? Like that mm. for me is where it's got to start. Yeah. And, the, and of course, the first encounter that we have with the natural world is our own bodies. Yeah. it's amazing just i don't know just it's so obvious and blindingly obvious and yet it's so ignored our educational system is all about pumping people into being intellectual only yes essentially so, I mean, I think the, there is a movement in education, well, Tim Logan is one of them, but there's several others as well who are uh, grasping onto the whole intelligence as, as, a, as, a, as a, a stick with which to beat the, the educational establishment, right. um, which I'm kind of excited about. They're beating gently, of course, <laughs> non-violently. <laughs> non-violent. Or an invitation to uh, some explorations, right? Which is really what the book yes. is, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, and, and I thought just pertinent to what we've just been talking about in the environment is, is the story of the, of the care homes. I wonder if right. you could just share a little bit on that, because I, I, that was one of my favourite stories in the book. Yes. Um, well, this was not, a, it wasn't a direct experience. It was an experience of, of two people who I mentioned in, in the book, um, who I would love to name them, but can I remember their names? So Deb, Deborah, Deb, Debbie, and um, some of these. Susan? Um, I only read it half an hour ago. I can't read it. I can't remember. Yeah. Um, but um, Debbie Carroll and was one of them, and I've forgotten her companion but she was she was um fantastically um she came from a a commercial background i think she'd run a been a manager in a big store or something you know she was new with the ground here and i can't remember um she got involved in garden garden design with a, another garden designer and they and they were given a chance to um, design a garden for a care home. And it grew into being, realising that they had to um, understand how the care home worked and what the, as it were, built into the framework. And um, this this is all documented in the book. And it's like they discovered, of course, that, People just sat around in armchairs, staring at a screen in a kind of doze, and they wanted them to come outside. And but of course, then they but they they you know the place wasn't geared up to that. There was a whole way of existing that kept people sitting in armchairs looking at the telly because that was the only thing that they knew how to do. So the, it was an example of. Um, experimenting. I mean, I think it comes into the 
chapter on experimenting That's right. yeah. in the book, it's like they were doing things that, that were outlandish or seemed outlandish to the, to the people running the care home. But they realized that once they did get people sitting out in the garden and so on, um, that they were, they were more comfortable and that they were happier and that they were more engaging with other people in the home and so on. I mean, it was just so obvious, and yet it took somebody with that kind of initiative and courage to push and to make something happen. And it just paid off. Yeah. It was a, it was a, a, a wonderful example. So I kind of seized on it and, as, an, as, a, a, as to, to write about it. Yeah. And what I loved about the simplicity of, of our early experiments was to, just to simply shift the orientation of the chairs. So, so it started with all the chairs were facing the television. Oh, that's and right. The first thing, that's the, right. The first thing they did was they moved right. into little clusters and yes. facing the windows. And just yes. by simply looking at the garden, they started to take an interest in the garden. Because right. this is the context yeah. for it, was that in the past, yeah. when these care homes had provided gardens for the, for the uh, residents, they'd just die because the residents weren't interested in tending them. Well, they, right. they didn't want to go out. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. they didn't want to go out and tend them. Yeah. So by, no, by... It... Hmm. yeah, so there were, there were lots of things. I, it's coming back to me now. It's a while since I read that bit. But... Um, you're remembering it better, <laughs> the, but uh, also the uh, what they also instituted was doing things that made sense to the residents, like helping them put out, put out the washing on the lines, because they they had done that when they were younger, uh, and they knew how to do it, and it, it wasn't. It, and I think you know they, there were more efficient ways of drying the clothes and big dryers or whatever. But actually the simple thing of hanging stuff up on the line gave them satisfaction. Right. I think some of these ideas are creeping in, but it's like, this is a good example of how whole intelligence it's a, whole intelligence is what people know deep down in their bones. It makes sense, but they don't do it. And they don't, and they go along with things that don't make sense. Yeah, yeah, but that's right. Don't, don't resonate. And so it's like a kind of, I want to shake, shake up the culture, the zeitgeist. Say, let's get on with it. Do it. Make it happen. We've got the capacity to do it. Yeah, I don't, um, I don't think, you're gone, sorry. No, that's fine. I, and I was just saying, no. and I think one of the reasons we do that, and why, again, why these all interrelate, is because we're so in our heads. We, we have such finely honed defensive skills to be able to brush off whatever we're feeling in our tummies or our hearts about what we're doing, yeah. Um, yeah. That, that we become as humans very like, adaptable in a sense to all of these, what you might call like, I don't know, like um, low, mm. I don't know, like impoverished environments. Yes. Because we're so much in our head, and what I'm finding more and more is as I become more grounded, as I become more embodied, I become much more resistant <laughs> and less tolerant yes. of what, yes. you know, sometimes get called toxic environments. Or, yes. You know, and, and, of course, there is a certain element in society <laughs> would prefer perhaps us not to be like that, but I think part right. of us reclaiming our humanity is going towards that and yeah. getting stronger in our own beings yes. And, yes. and kind of yes. demanding a different environment for ourselves in, in how we work or 
are cared for in care homes or whatever it might be. Brilliant. Yeah, I totally agree with what you just said. I mean, it's like a a general awakening. And it is what I, why in my subtitle, the world is waking up. It was like I did detect that. I mean, they were obviously been going on for a long time, but more and more people are waking up to it. Um, Waking up to the, to what feels and we sense is absolutely right. I mean, Mm. this is a kind of, um, an awakening and a, and and less tolerance, as you say, of 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 uh, corruption and sliding around and not being decisive and not prioritizing sensibly. So there's a there is a political critique in here too. Yeah, political critique and 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 something about the general enlivening of people that we only have one life and it goes damn quickly i mean you know and as you get older it goes quicker and quicker (laughs) (laughs) the the decades slip away (laughs) and um uh, every moment counts every day counts um and and I, i came across this wonderful quote um which actually I meant to write down because I wanted to include it today, but I didn't. But fundamentally, it, it was a, a statement saying that in every encounter with every person we meet, we have the opportunity to make a real difference to their lives, often simply by just listening, maybe saying something back about our own reactions to what they've said, um, offering a word of encouragement, a word of thanks, a word of acknowledgement, uh, a little gift, and it's 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 um, mindfulness in a way, mindfulness of the interrelating interrelating aspect of whole intelligence. We are all connected. We're all fundamentally similar. Right. Well, yeah. We're all incredibly different in our details and in our life histories and in our the way that we've been battered around or had great opportunities and we've come through and we've developed certain ways of being and so on. So we're highly differentiated, but actually underneath that, we're very, very similar. Yes, yes. We all yes, want to you... be... Go on, yeah, sorry. We all want to be affirmed, listened to, understood, <laughs> recognised as having good ideas or whatever. It's not... And and uh, and we we need other people, and we, yeah. Anyway, yeah. No, it just reminds me of there's a section in the book, the, the interrelating chapter, where I, I think you mentioned one of your colleagues who just relates the story of simply playing back. Uh, I think to an individual who's coaching um, everything that that person had just said, just just point by point. You said this. You said this. You said this. You said this. And maybe you might, as you say, you might want to add some of your own reflection on it but just that very simple act and i find it in my own work if i just stop mm. t- t- try and put my attention on all of their words play back verbatim yeah. some of what they makes an enormous mm. difference to their, mm. <laughs> their life in that moment yeah absolutely one of the one of the great um laws if you like of gestalt is is the um uh, the principle of paradoxical change it's like 
you don't try and change somebody you try and enter into their world and in a sense help them to expand on their experience in that place wherever they are and and the, the more that you do that the more that change comes about spontaneously through a process of self-organization so it's like it's a paradoxical you 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 actually bring about change by not trying to change anybody but to just meet them how they are that's oh god michael i need to clip that out and just play it into my head every morning I am a, a repeat offender. I'm trying to project like how I want the world to be on others. And, well, and yeah. every time I stop and as you say, just listen and let them expand, of course, you know, mm. the results are uh, much, uh, yes. a much superior. Yes. But, yeah, yes. Superior. yes. Yeah. Well, this is one of the paradoxes of life, isn't it? That almost every good idea, you can think of circumstances where the opposite idea is, is also true. Right. So, uh, so but at the like, very least, that modality, let's say, or that mode of, of, of interacting is underused. <laughs> I yes, would argue. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, I, and I, um, yeah. 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 I should, I'm just calm. Are we coming up to the end? I yeah, we of, are coming up to the end. We, we've had an yes. hour. Um, yes. Well, I, I, I'm thoroughly enjoyed this. It's um, great, great, to, great to meet somebody who really gets it so quickly because <laughs> <laughs> you've been on some kind of parallel journey. Oh yes, yes, I have. And uh, uh, as, as people, regular listeners to this show will know, you know, my journey has been on the therapeutic path in um, a modality or pri- primal therapy. Oh, which yeah. emerged at a very similar crazy. time in a similar part of the world, yes. right? To a lot of the Gestalt yeah. practitioners. Yes, uh, yes. And has perhaps a much, a much deeper focus on trauma, right? Of course, which is part of, as you've just described, part of the kind yes. of Gestalt view, but uh, uh, Primal sort of focuses very heavily on that aspect of the human yeah. experience. But yeah. uh, there yeah. are a lot of parallels. Yes. I do remember once that I had someone who'd, well, it wasn't quite primal therapy. I think it was more, um, uh, what was it, rebirthing type things, which kind of, I think, associate slightly with primal therapy. Yeah. yeah. Sort yeah, of. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, sort of. I mean, a lot of the pure primalists <laughs> would be horrified at that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I remember that she, that... Um, uh, I was working with her, and if she if she was in slightly sad, she would immediately just go into tears and so on. And if she was angry, she'd go into a rage. Or if she was um, happy, she'd be jumping up and down in joy and so on. And and uh, and I can't remember why I was working with her. I suppose she must have come to me for therapy or something. And um. But anyway, I just concentrated on trying to lessen her extreme <laughs> emotiveness. <laughs> it's completely opposite to what I was doing with the vast majority of people, which was to encourage them to enter their feelings. With her, yes. I was saying, okay, so when you feel this 
kind of sense that you want to just scream your head off with frustration. Is there a, just let's pause for a minute, whether there's any other way that you could do that with slightly less uh, feeling? <laughs> so, <laughs> so the whole thing was different. So this is like uh, the, the other side of experimenting. See, which right, is, yeah. Well, it sounds and, like perhaps for her that it becomes somehow performative and in some ways perhaps some form of defence, right? I mean, I don't absolutely, know. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yes, no, it's, um, it's good. No, thank you. And uh, I, think, I think what I really take away from this, especially from the book, is, um, yeah, the, this focus on embodying and, and it's and not just within the body. Because of course, having done all this primal work, I'm so into my body. I sometimes yeah, forget, no. of course, that we're, we're, we're interrelated, uh, you know, with the environment and with nature. Yes, indeed. Um, uh, and you've got one quote in the book, which I just wanted to share before we close. That if the natural world is our home, most of us border on homelessness. And, um, you know, that was one. And, and, and sometimes I think it's important for me to remember that, that, you know, yeah. our home is this natural yeah, world. And absolutely. the more connected we can absolutely. feel to it, the the better now yeah yeah great okay well we'll put a link to future sense um okay in the show descriptions uh and your website of course uh where there are more resources is there anything else you'd you anywhere else you'd point people um well uh i i would i like to encourage people to look into gestalt as well so there's an incredible amount of stuff on the web now about um the gestalt movement because it's it's it, in some parts of the world it's growing like crazy mm. not not alas so much in england and america and whatever um but in eastern europe uh, other South America and so on. They're huge. Russia, huge. Well, I can imagine why it might be, might be taking off in yeah, in those parts yeah. Eastern Europe. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, and uh, so I, I, I feel a, a very strong affiliation to Gestalt and and gratitude, and also. Um, to the whole tradition, actually, the whole humanistic tradition, include mm. also primal therapy. <laughs> yeah, we could we could include that. Yeah, it's a little reminder of to be inclusive rather than <laughs> hey, you're in that and I'm this, <laughs> which has not been helpful in our in our human existence. Right, and you talk about that in the book, which we don't, yeah, which we haven't really got yeah. into, but the, yeah. the sort of the, the, yeah. this tendency of us to polarize and put ourselves Absolutely. in an in group and them in an out group, right? Yeah, it seems yeah. to be so wired into our <laughs> Absolutely. physiology, Absolutely. right? I mean, yeah, well, I it probably was in the evolutionary terms, yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's lots more to talk about, but we, we thank you and um, very honored to have. You invited me and to have had this opportunity. No, it feels like I, 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 I'm the one who feels honoured. It's uh, it's great, and I, yeah. I look forward to the manifesto. Um, yes. When when do you hope to have that published? This summer. This summer, okay. Yeah, no, no, it's 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 got to come out because this is the because the time is ripe. The time yeah. is so ripe for this. And do you have a sacred uh, commitment for this one? 
<laughs> nothing of the same order. Um, but I do have more, I have some very good supporters and support people, including the guy who introduced me to you. He's oh, yes. Very, very, well, we should, yes. Very, very helpful, Kieran. Yeah. Kieran, thank you, Kieran, if you're listening. If you got to this part of the conversation, you didn't listen. Yes, thank you. Good. Oh, that's good. I'm glad he's supporting you. Fabulous. All right. Well, thanks once again. It's been a, a pleasure. Yeah. Okay. Thank well, you. good luck to you and all your efforts. And yeah, hope thank we you. meet again. Yes, I hope Bye-bye. so. Thank you. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by first human for more on first humans human focused coaching and leadership programs head to firsthuman.com